Every great story has a turning point. Every great story has a point where things are looking grim, they're looking dark, they're looking hopeless. It looks like it's going to go as bad as it's going to go. It's the part of the story we read where we just want to read through it faster so we can get to the point where it gets better. It turns around. It it starts coming back to the way we know it's supposed to be in our heart, in our being, in our in our fiber. There's great great turning points in a great story. There's great turning points in history. In our own country, there's you know Yorktown, the great battle where the the war of independence was turned. There's there's the Civil Rights Act in our country. That great turning point where we moved away from so much of the institutional racism that was our country to the freedom liberty that we're still striving to live up to completely, but it was a huge turning point. We see turning points in World War II, if you've ever studied the Battle of Midway, turning points that are absolutely amazing. Uh, Viking fans had the Minnesota Miracle. <laughs> and as you may be well aware of, I'm no Viking fan, but even I looked at that and said, dang, that, that was pretty good. And there was a turning point. And at that turning point, there's this unbelievable joy, there's this celebration, there's this understanding that that what our heart has been longing for, the good that we long to see at the end of the story wins. And that's where we're at tonight in this incredible book of the book of Esther. We're at that turning point where it seems like darkness and evil is at its pinnacle, where it seems to be the most just powerful when all of a sudden Things start to fall apart for evil, and evil is shown for what it is. It is judged, it is thrown down, and it is destroyed. And, and that's, that's a, a meant to be a, a, a message of hope for us. Because here's the thing that we believe as Christians. We believe that in the end, evil loses. You don't sound, I didn't get many amens there. <laughs> There's one, thank you. We believe that at the end of the day, light conquers darkness, good conquers evil, that there's victory at the end of the story. But here, you personally, and we as a people, and, and, and throughout history, we may feel like we're not at that turning point. We're not at that point where it starts turning around. But here's the deal. We have turning points in our life. When we recognize them, they're meant to be just, just, just gifts of hope that are meant to keep us trusting in God. So so we see this by looking at the fourth character that we're looking at in the book of Esther this weekend. We're looking at the man Haman. Now Haman, of course, we learned in the weeks before, is he is an evil guy. He has given himself over to hatred and revenge and jealousy, and he is just a wicked person. He he has manufactured a plan to, to create genocide, to murder the people of God. Now, in the history of the Jewish people, the person Haman is meant to be the personification of evil. In fact, when Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim, which is based on the story and comes from the story of Esther, we're going to talk about that next week, whenever the name Haman is mentioned, they all go, boo. As they read the story, they hear him, boo. It's just this understanding that this is evil. This is the thing that needs to be struck down and destroyed. And so as we read about this, just understand that this is meant for all of time and throughout Scripture to be kind of a a picture, a symbol, a metaphor, a, a type for evil and the ultimate destiny 
of those evil things. So listen to what it says. It says, And Haman went out that day joyfully and glad in heart. So why is he joyful and glad of heart? Well, because he has this guy by the name of Mordecai who refuses to bow down to him because the king, remember the king Xerxes, Xerxes had made him his number two, and, and the king is commanded, everyone's supposed to bow down whenever, whenever Haman comes by. But Mordecai won't do it because there's this ancient hatred between the people of God and the people of Haman. And this ancient hatred goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so because of that, he's come up with this plan to kill Mordecai and all the people of God. And now the plan is in place. The wheels are working. He's just coming back from from a time with the king and everything seems to be going his way. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got fame. He, he He just has the whole thing under control. And so he's glad and joyful of heart. But this is one of the things I want to see, want you to see about the nature of evil. That when you give yourself to evil, when you choose that thing which is maybe for you a shortcut, an ethical shortcut, maybe for you it's a compromise of your convictions, maybe for you it's just a nestling up to something you shouldn't nestle up to, maybe for you it's getting used to something that you ought not get used to, maybe it's calling something good that you ought not call good. When you do that, you get a quick momentary rush of happiness, pleasure, But long term, you fill your life with a kind of despair and disease that makes your life miserable. Watch this now. He was joyful in heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So he came out again. Instead of celebrating all the things he had, here's Mordecai. He's even got the plan in place to get rid of Mordecai, but he's just so enraged by that that this guy's not afraid of him. There's nothing worse for a bully than someone who stands up to him and stands up particularly without fear. Now verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. So here he is trying to talk himself into a better mood. So he calls all his friends together. This is exactly what the king did. And calls his wife together. He said, look at all my riches and the number of his sons. I got family and all the promotions which the king has honored me. And how he's advanced me above all all the other officials in the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no, let no one come with me to the king's feast she has prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. And so he's saying all these things. Look at all I have. I have position. I have power. And even tomorrow I have been invited to an exclusive banquet with just the king and the queen. That's how awesome and important I am. And you would think that he's achieved everything he wanted and he's done whatever he's had to do to get it, but at the end of the day, he's going to be very satisfied. Now, one of the things you need to know is he's not going to enjoy the banquet he's going to go at tomorrow as much as he thinks. We'll say more about that in a minute. Verse 13. It says, yet, verse 13 now, yet all that is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is a guy consumed with anger, contempt, and hatred. And that's what evil does. See, evil, when it first before us, is an opportunity. When we embrace it, when we act on it, it becomes sin. When it becomes a pattern of sin in our life so that it no longer bothers us, we actually kind of enjoy it, we actually get to the point we start suddenly bragging about it, we actually start teaching it to other people, well then, evil is what we become. It starts to own us in a deep and abiding way. And it is an insidious thing. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm just going to become evil today. Two o'clock, become evil. You know, there's no academy for it. 
There's no school for it. It is an incremental thing. And very often, people with good intentions, maybe we'll say good hearts and all that, find them slipping into compromises, slipping into behavior, slipping into ways of thinking, slipping in sometimes to addictions that begin to own them in the worst way. Well, he is so filled with his hate and this anger that it's keeping him from enjoying everything that he has. Evil is consuming him. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends say to him, let's handle this. He says, let gallows 50 cubits high be made in the morning. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had all the gallows made. So here's the deal. He says, you know, you've got this plan where all the Jews are going to be killed. Don't wait. You know, fast track this for Mordecai. Make this giant gallows. Make it big. Because you want to just do this. You want to smash him. You don't just want to kind of bring him down. You want to kill him. And then go to the kingdom. you got your favor. He's, you got his ring. You can get anything you want. And just say, hey, I would like to have Mordecai put to death on these gallows tonight. And, and, and so, so here's the story playing out. And so it says, look what it says to him. And this is just an indication of how far his heart had gone. The idea pleased him. The idea of taking another person's life, of making another person small. This is a person who has so given their soul over to evil and hatred that it began to own them in the deepest way. And so he went to bed content in in the knowledge that he was going to do this evil thing. You know, evil and, and sin is a funny thing. We get the idea that it, it's really somebody else's problem. And it tends to bother us in really bad things and really bad people. But we don't ever take time to evaluate whether or not it's slipping into our life. You know what the Bible says about evil and sin? It says it is always working on you. It describes it as a lion that's on the prowl. It, it says that it is searching. In another place it says it is reaching. It says it desires to have you. It says it hates you. It says it, it is after you and your children. It, it's wanting to do things like lie to you and deceive you, to cover you with shame, to take away your prosperity and your hope. And so evil is always at work. And so for us to be kind of you know, naive about it or, or to just kind of dismiss it is actually just that. It's being naive. So, so this understanding that, that we, in one sense, have a battle with sin. We have one, another sense, to be aware of sin, to always be evaluating ourselves. The psalmist teaches us to pray, God, search me and try me. Test me to see if there be any unrighteous way in me, and then lead me to the way that's everlasting. The Bible says in the New Testament that the wise person is the one who surrounds himself with many counselors. It's the one who trusts the wounds of a friend. The one who, in, in the book of Hebrews says, is struggling against sin so that they might achieve righteousness. And so this understanding that sin is active is meant to be understood in this person, Haman. And, and here's the deal. We like the idea of God opposing sin, we even like the idea of God judging sin if it's somebody else's. In fact, here's the deal about God and sin and judgment and and how he handles sin, because he's going to be really hard on Haman here in in a couple verses. We like the idea when it's on something else, like trafficking. Or, or injustice, or poverty, or some evil thing. We want that thrown down. And we want God to be like that. In fact, if God is not a God who fights against sin, who opposes sin, who punishes sin, who judges sins, then he's not God. He can't be other than that. That's just who he is. And if he were other than that, he would not be God. And so we like the idea of that. But here's the problem. If we examine ourselves, we see it slips in to ourselves. 
So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, let's look at the story. The story goes on. So this is what happens. So Haman goes to bed, all happy. Well, the king goes to bed too, not so happy. This very night, now this is another example of the invisible hand of God. So God is not mentioned, but this just happens to be the night the king can't sleep. Listen to what happens. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read to the king. It says, someone read me some bedtime stories. And, and they started reading the things that happened during the king's time and what was memorable. Verse 2. And it was found how Mordecai had told about the two eunuchs, the king, those hard names to pronounce, um, were, who were guarding the threshold, who sought out to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what honor and distinction has bestowed, been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him and said, nothing has been done for him. Well, all of a sudden, the king realized, wow, this guy saved my life. I mean, I am surrounded by people who are kissing up to me, who are trying to get promotion from me, but this guy, Mordecai, just, just saved my life and didn't do anything to kind of leverage this against me. And so he says, what has been done for him? He said, nothing's been done for him. So it goes on, and then skip in verse 4. It says, and the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court to the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that was prepared for him. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. The invisible hand of God. In just that incredible moment, we see that God had a plan all along. And so the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman was coming in nice and early to get this going. The king had got up. He said, I'm going to get this thing straightened with Mordecai. This is the right thing to do. I'm going to, going to take care of this guy. He says, let him come in. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, and this is what evil will do too. It will delude you about yourself. It will make you feel more secure than you are. It will cause you to start having confidence in very, very fragile things like your wealth, your intellect, your standing, your ability to talk your way out of problems, your, your personal strength, all of those things which are not nearly as impressive as we think they are. And so he says, whom, whom, what should be done for the man the king's honor? And Haman said to himself, okay, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He's got to be talking about me. I mean, I'm his favorite. And so we, the verses that follow, what, what happens is Haman comes up with this one and says, well, what you should do is you should let whoever you really like, put him in your robes and, and let him wear one of your crowns and put him on one of your finest animals and then have one of your highest officials lead that person through the city and just pour on him and says, this is what is done for the one whom the king honors. This is one who's done for the king who honors. And he's just thinking, you say, oh, that's it. Everybody, come on in. This is what we're going to do for Haman. Because we will convince ourselves that the shortcuts and the compromises and the putting up with the things that we shouldn't put up with will lead us to a place of honor. But ultimately here, just hear me on this, sin and evil leads to shame. It ultimately is thrown down. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so expecting to be exalting, it all turns and evil begins its descent. And so 
This is what happens in verse 9. This is one of the best parts of the book. Then the king said to Haman, just imagine his face. Hurry, take the robes and the horses of you have said, and do to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you've said. Leave everything you said. Leave out nothing you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square in the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the men who the king delights to honor. And immediately, this one who expected to be served is the servant. The one who expected to be first is last. Sounds like something somebody said once. The one who is exalted, he thought he'd be exalted, is teared down. And the one who is humble is lifted up. And honor and shame is flipped on its head. Look what it says in verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the, king, the king's gate. Notice he goes right back to work. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. That's a picture of shame. Because that's what shame makes us want to do. It makes us want to cover our head. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I can't believe I went to do that thing. And then instead, this happened. But the problem for Haman is his day's not over yet. And Haman told his wife, Zareth, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zareth, said to him, if Mordecai, be, if Mordecai before whom you have fall, begun to fall, whom, look at that, you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so all of a sudden, those ones who are supporting him, they see which way the wind is turning, and they switch, they switch sides uh, completely. And let me tell you what happens at the next part of the story. I haven't got time to read it all, but it's the best part of the story. So what ends up happening is that Haman has to leave. And as it leaves, it says, he went and he saw his gallows being created. And he wondered just as he left his courtyard, he didn't wonder whether or not those gallows were going to have a different purpose than the one he expected them to have. And he goes and he's at the banquet. And at the banquet, that's when Queen Esther falls to her knees and said, King, you've got to help us. There's someone who's trying to kill me and kill my people and has come with this conspiracy to kill us all. And who it is... And immediately she points over to Haman. And now Haman recognizes he's in trouble because of Mordecai. And now the queen has pointed him out in this entire conspiracy to kill the Jews. And wait a minute. Isn't Mordecai a Jew? And all of it starts falling apart. And the Bible says Haman's face just sank. And, 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 and the king, it says, became enraged. Which, of course, is his pattern. He's been drinking too much wine. He gets so angry, he storms out of the palace. And, and, and Haman, in desperation, goes over to where the queen sits, and he falls down at her feet, and he begs her, please, please, show mercy, help him from mercy. At that moment, the king comes back in, and he sees Haman seemingly groping his wife. Just a bad day for Haman. Just a bad day. And he left work so happy the day before. And evil is turned on its ear. And it says, the king's face fell, and he fell, and he knew judgment was going to call, fall. And, and it says in, in Esther chapter 6, verse 14, and this is judgment. It says, while they were talking yet with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried to bring him into the feast um, that Esther had prepared. Then, uh, skipping down to verse, uh, uh, going to, I'm sorry, uh, going to verse, um, going to verse 9 of chapter 5. 
Then Haman, one of the eunuchs in the attendance of the king, there it is, moreover, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. And judgment falls on evil. And this is what happens to judgment. And this is what happens to evil. At the end of the story, that which has exalted itself above God, that's what is rebelled against God, is thrown down. In other parts of the Bible, it talks about this. In the book of the Psalms, it says, the psalmist prays, uh, a father, let, let the pit that the enemy has dug for me let them fall in it themselves. That's exactly what happens with Haman. He prays in another place that, that may the unrighteous who seek, to, who, who seek to fill my life with shame, let their faces be covered with shame. Let, let those who have exalted themselves above you be torn down because it's good, right, and proper that it should happen. Injustice and evil and oppression, ultimately, the book of the Revelation says, will be thrown in the lake of fire with the devil and all evil things. And it's good, right, and appropriate that all of this happens. You see, we live in a world where evil is working hard, and and the shortcuts and the the tearing down and the evil desires, all of that, that looks like it's winning. But there is a turning point coming. Indeed, there have been many turning points that come. Now, I asked an important question earlier, and the important question was this. Remembering that it becomes very easy, you know, to be very judgmental about the evil of other people. And indeed, we should hate it. The Bible says we should hate evil. We should, we should, we should, we should fight it. We should resist it. We, we, should, we should just push it out of our lives. And, and, and so we should stand against it. But what happens when we look back and we realize, my gosh, there's evil that I've embraced. There's sin in my life. Well, that draws us back to the most profound turning point in all of human history. It was the time when it seemed like evil was ultimately and perfectly going to win when Jesus Christ was nailed on the cross. When the one who came and taught service and love, the one who was humble and meek, looked like he was going to be covered in shame, which he was, was looking to be left and abandoned. And the one who was evil, our ancient enemy, the, the serpent, the devil, was full of of mocking and scorn seemed to have win, that, that death had won the day. And then we know the story, right? Christ is put in the tomb. And when he comes out of the tomb three days later, he takes our sin and shame, and he leaves it in the tomb, and he comes out righteous, and he has made us righteous. Now, now who has he made righteous? Those, listen now, who have turned away from evil who have turned away from their sin, not, not that they've become perfect, but they've turned away, and they've actively pursued Christ. They said, you know what, Christ, I can't, I can't make up for my own evil. I can't even stop doing evil. So I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to put my faith and trust in what you have done on the cross, and I'm going to start focusing on you, that you would make me good. Here's one of the greatest, greatest keys about overcoming evil in your life. If you want to overcome evil in your life, quit focusing on the evil. Focus on good. If you want to overcome evil in your life, quit thinking about it and focusing on it, coming up with schemes about it and rules and really hard standards that you're trying to get together. Instead, fill your life with other good things, other good relationships, other good uh, activities. 
in a good relationship with the living God. You want to get even in our life? Get really, really close to Jesus. Know him and learn to pray and learn to work uh, in his word. Learn to do these things of devotions. Listen, if you're not actively, regularly, daily pursuing Christ in intimacy, well, then evil is probably leaking into your life. It's probably sneaking in there in ways that you're not even, even aware of. But if you so crowd your life with Christ and, and with the good things that accompany Christ, there's not a lot of room left for evil to creep into your life. That becomes your turning point. I know for me, my turning point was when I was a teenager. You know, see, I, I was a, a kid who went to church, and I, th- I was the good kid, and, 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 and I was going to be a priest, and all those other things, five kids later, not so much. And, and that whole thing... And, and, and I thought I was good enough. But, but when I started reading the scripture and looking at what God said about sin and the intent of the heart and what I did and what I didn't do and the fact that I couldn't do anything to make up for my sin and even my attempts to make up for my sin were half-hearted and thus sinful and so I was stuck in this thing where it seemed like sin owned me and that the more I chased after sinful things, the less happy I became. So I became like the Apostle Paul who said, you know, who will save me from this body of death? Well, Paul said, Praise be to Jesus Christ. And when I understood that it wasn't what I do to make up for my sin, it's what Jesus Christ did for me. And that he would call me to hate my sin because it was killing me and turn from my sin because it was destroying me. That my turning point was when I turned away from myself and my sin and turned to Christ. See, the, the, the Greek word, the word for that is called repentance. And the Greek word literally means to turn or to change, first turning in your mind. And once you turn in your mind, your, your life begins to turn too. And you turn away from sin and you turn Christ. And so this weekend, I kind of want to ask you, have you had your turning point? Has, has there been a time in your life where you have just looked honestly and squarely in the eye and said, this is what sin has done to me. And, and I'm just done rationalizing it. I'm done excusing it. I'm done comparing mine to everybody else's. My pile's not as big as your pile. I, I'm done laughing at it or joking at it. I'm going to start hating it because it's killing me. And it may just look like this much in my life, and it's really bad at that. That should be judged. But, you know, mine's just, you know, it's, it's white noise. It's white sin. It's a white lie. You know, it's not that bad. But here's the deal. If God is a holy God and he opposes sin, and sin is still who we are because we've not been to Christ, well, ultimately, we're on that side of the fence, not with Christ on this side of the fence. And so I want to just ask you again, have you had your turning point? Has there been a time in your life where you've become so frustrated with your sin that you've turned to Christ and said, Christ, I can't do this. I need you. I need you to come into my life. I need you to be my Lord. I need you to be my Savior. No, that doesn't mean you become perfect and you don't stop sinning necessarily. It doesn't mean that you become, you know, a person doesn't struggle with sin anymore. But there's a fundamental difference. Sin is no longer characterizes you. You begin a journey of moving away from who you used to be to who you become. And that's the great turning point. And that's the picture we see in Haman. That Haman is that which is judged, that which is left for dead appropriately. And we don't have to be that way because of who we have in Christ. You know, um, this is, if I can just share this for a minute, one of the reasons why the church is so important, the church of Jesus Christ is so important. Because we, we are in a world where evil is very well organized. And evil works really, really hard. And, and so we as the people of God need to be a place where we come together and we have the courage to say, 
These things are evil. These things are wrong. These things will kill you. And to warn people about it and the reality of sin and death and all those things that are related in that way. And so the, the work of the church is really important. One of the scariest things in the world is what happens when communities lose their, their churches. We, we saw it about 40 years ago in our inner cities. We're actually seeing it in small-town America today. And what happens when, when the churches go away is that there's, there, there becomes less and less places that are just standing up and saying, well, this is right and this is wrong. Well, how do you know that's right and wrong? Well, because this is who God is. And the nature and character of God shows us what right and wrong is. And so the church becomes wonderfully, gloriously, beautifully important. That's why we do everything we're doing. That's why we're doing the building. I don't know if you noticed, but we got a big pile of wood out there this weekend. Do you see that? That, that big pile of wood, yeah, that big pile of wood is going to be a church building. And, and what a church building is, is it's a tool. It's a tool to equip people. It's a tool to disciple people who are moving away from the brokenness of sin they used to be to the, to the new life they have in Christ now. And, and it's designed to help all of us, but also to reach out in the community. That's why Builders for Christ is coming. Um, we got a story about a family, uh, the Barnharts. The cool thing about the Barnhart story is that um, they shared a couple weeks ago their, their giving story. But this is a story about their involvement in Builders for Christ. Um, they got involved with Builders for Christ. Um, when we built um, our second unit, they intended all summer long to get involved and to help out. But their summer got busy and they didn't make the plans. They didn't sign up. And they came after being gone for several, several, several weeks. And, and they had, uh, we had a dedication Sunday. And they just said, and they saw how cool it was. So I can't believe we missed that. Well, the next summer, the next summer, they went on the BFC trip. Um, and they've been going ever since. Here's a little bit of their story. My name is Rebecca Barnhart. This is my husband, Michael. We started going to Jacob's Well in 2007. So far, we've been on three trips for Builders for Christ. Uh, we were down in Phil Campbell, Alabama. We were in Waterloo, Illinois. And then this last year, we went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Builders for Christ is a group of believers and followers from across the nation that have assembled. And each year, they pick two to three projects, building worship centers and churches for other Christians to come together and grow. Some of the activities that we would do in a, a typical BFC trip are anywhere from ground floor up, starting to do the framing, to do the roofing, to do uh, insulation, put sheetrock in, paint. The trip that impacted me the most was our first one in Phil Campbell, Alabama. Um, it was a community that was basically blown off the map by an F5 tornado, and they, the church that we were rebuilding was literally wiped from the foundation and um, they lost a lot of members from their congregation. We got there early enough that we could join the worship service on Sunday uh, before and, and really to hear the congregation and where their hearts were. We knew that God had brought us to the right place even though it was over a thousand miles away. Hearing that pastor in person and uh, being a part of the rebuild was it was something that was awesome, not only I think as a couple and in our, our own spiritual walks, but also to do that as a family with our daughters. Working for BFC is super exciting. There's this energy and electricity that's there from day one. And just being able to connect with people, one that you've never met before, from a completely different state, from a completely different church, is such a blessing. You're not just building a structure, but you're also building those relationships. 
this is really our, our journey to expand and incorporate something big that's happening in the Chippewa Valley. Here, this is happening in our own backyard. This is an opportunity to really give one week that'll give you back several, several years of development, maybe as a father, maybe as a couple, but quite frankly, as a family here in the community. The Live It Well campaign is really about more than just the financial aspect, but also about journeying and serving together. Where would we be today if 10 years ago we hadn't had doors open that really over the last 10 years has invited 2,000 people in? And what would it look like 10 years from now if we didn't open the door to the next 2,000? This is a form of worship. This is how we show our gratefulness to God in the form of serving. What really excites us about Live It Well is the fact that we've been so blessed as a family by the resources that have been provided to us by Jacob's Well, and this gives us a chance to give back and provide that to other families in the future. You know, you speak about turning points, and there was a huge turning point. Golly, uh, it had to be at this point now, almost 15 years ago, when a group of us drove over to Green Bay to meet with an architect, Lawrence Corley, who was the leader of the Village for Christ group. And to be honest, first time Lawrence and I met, we kind of butted heads, didn't like each other. You know, uh, he was right, I was wrong, <laughs> actually. Um, but a friendship began, and then a relationship, and then a partnership began. And then this incredible journey began with these people from Builders for Christ. This weekend, this week actually, I was in Alabama um, and uh, visiting some of our BFC folks and and several churches. And one of the churches I was at was um, a wonderful church, Valleydale Church, that I hadn't been at. They have their weekly mission conference this week. And I hadn't been there since 10 years ago when I was there, just before they built our first unit. So it was actually a little longer than that. 2005, I think it was, I was down there. And, um, And I hadn't been back since then. And, and the first year I went, there was a fellow by the name of Ralph, and he had this incredible vision. He had been, he and two or three other guys had been on some Village for Christ trips, and he just wanted me to come to this mission trail. And he said, she's got to tell our people about this. You've got to get them excited about this. And he was just burdened. Well, well that year, um, um, uh, Ralph and a guy by the name Lonnie brought up 20 people to help work on our, the building you're sitting in right now. And every year they've had more and more. And last year when they went to Gatlinburg, they had a team of 78 going. And, and um, you know, I went and I spoke to them. And to be honest with you, a lot of them said, well, Gatlinburg was 300 miles. Jacob's well is 1,000 miles. We've been there twice. Why should we go back there? And then I just started telling them about you. I started telling them about the people who've come. And I kept telling them about people who found their turning points, people who were spiritually numb, and they found out there was a God who loved them. And their turning point came when they turned to Christ. People who was addicted and struggling with addiction, got in a program and recognized that the higher power was actually a person named Jesus Christ, and they found their turning point. You know, I, I told them about, you know, marriages that were in crisis and, and just falling apart, and they introduced Christ into their marriage, and it became a turning point. You see, this is the deal, is that this is a place of turning points. This is a place where, 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 where the story changes, and it's changed for hundreds of us and even thousands of us. And what we're doing out there is, is extending the story, and, and you don't, don't want to miss it. You want to be part of it. So, so this would be a great weekend for you to actually go and to sign up. Many of you have signed up. A lot of you have signed up without specifically signing up for weeks. But we actually need you to go to the table, or even better, go to the website. There's a big thing that says Builders for Christ. Do that hard work of figuring out your summer. Say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do when in your summer. Well, choose your BFC week and build everything else around that. How about that? Do that. Because we need to know you're coming. We need to know 
when you're coming. Some of you say, I can't do a week. Well, there are evenings you can sign up. You say, well, that'll be difficult. It will be difficult. It'll cost us something. But like they said, it'll be an act of worship. And now's the time for us to start taking those steps because you just don't want to miss it. There is just something, there's a spirit of God on the slab. There's a, a, a partnership with God that is just a very, very cool thing when you take part of doing something that's going to be crucial in people's turning points. Now, I want to end my time by just simply sharing this. For those of you who maybe the Spirit was speaking to a little bit ago, where you recognized that you've never grieved your sin, you've never turned away from your sin, you've never really turned to Christ. And, and the Spirit of God is speaking to you. We had the death this week of a hero, right, Billy Graham? What an amazing man. I just Every time I see stuff online, wow. Can you imagine the party in heaven? He's still in the receiving line, right? I mean, just still up there. I don't know how time works up there, but it's just an amazing thing. But you know what Billy Graham used to say? He used to say, the Bible says, the Bible says, and the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever puts their faith and trust in him will not perish with death and evil, but will have eternal life. And so what I'm calling you to do is to simply just pray this prayer with me, the prayer that I'm about to pray, and, and, and turn away from your old life, turn away from sin, and accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been in church for a long, long time, but you've never really understood it was about the sin. I just kind of thought that I was okay, but you're really recognizing that, boy, I just got to turn away from this. Well, let this prayer be your prayer now. Oh, Father, I have sinned. I see it. I get it. I've tried to fight it. I've tried to fake it. I've tried to rationalize it. I made fun of it. I've rationalized it. I've compared it to others. But I have sinned. And I, and I, just, I just need you to know I'm sorry. I see that sin is, is killing me, and more than anything else, it's keeping me from you. I know that there's nothing I can do to make up for it, to fix it, to clean it up, and so I give up on all those efforts to do this on my own. I'm no longer focused on what i got to do. I'm going to focus on what you've done. And so I'm turning away from my sin, making this my turning point, and I'm turning to you. And Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive my sins. I'm asking you to come into my life and to be my Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to take me to the Father and bring me, Father, home to him. Lord Jesus, I'm just trusting that when you bring me to the Father, you, you, will just, you will just bring me in such a way that the Father will receive me and make me one of his own. May your blood cleanse me from my sin. May my sins be lost forever. And this the sea of, of forgetfulness and washed away. And may I find eternal life in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's the deal. If you prayed that prayer this weekend for the first time, I want to challenge you to something that might be a little difficult for you. I just want to challenge you to go down to the prayer room. It's right down the hall down here. And just pop in and just tell someone, I prayed that prayer. And I just want someone to know, because it's important that you testify about having prayed that prayer. You may be new here. This may be one of your first times here. You may say, you know, I wanted to pray that prayer, but I got some questions. I want to encourage you to go to that prayer room. Talk to some of those folks, because there are folks there who know the story of Christ and would love to tell you about that. I want to challenge all of us this week to, um, to, to um, 
Look at BFC. Get to the website. Sign up. I'm just praying, you know, for dozens and dozens more sign-ups this week as more people are able to make their plans and commit with that. One other thing I want to let you know is that if this week is the week where you just have a new celebration of the eternal life you have in Christ... Well, we have baptisms this Easter. Easter, we're going to be baptizing again. And so if you're interested in being baptized, I actually want to encourage you to do this. I want you to actually encourage you to go ahead and take one of these commitment cards here, rip it off, right? I want to know what, more about baptism. Put your name on it and just drop it in the offering plate. And uh, we'll get information about when the baptism classes are going to happen. Because baptism is all a celebration of your turning point. When you turned away from death, and you turn to life, you turn to God, and you started finding a relationship with him, that's the secret place, and that's what this last song is all about.